0: This is the Annex uh, Sociology Podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queen's College in the City University of New York. Today, we're going to discuss Eric Fromm and global public sociology with McMaster University's Neil McLaughlin. We're going to talk about classical Soch, mining it for insights into today and the role of public sociology in our discipline. All coming up next. Our discussion was recorded on December 13th. 2021. We are here with Neil McLaughlin of McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Neil is an expert on Eric Fromm. Published quite a bit on him, by the way. It's quite an impressive publication record you have there. It's a pleasure to have you. Neil, welcome. Thank you. And Neil has just published a new book Eric Fromm and Global Public Sociology with Bristol University Press. It's a reach into classical soci and life and work of a classical sociologist who might not get enough attention. And he's bringing it back with a very interesting topic to discuss. I think it's very topical, the role of public sociology. So I'm really looking forward to this talk. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: I love the podcast. It's great to be here.
0: Thank you very much. So for those of us, including me, who are not particularly strong in classical theory and the history of the discipline, let's start off. was Eric Fromm and and the Frankfurt School? What, What are they about? Well, Eric Fromm
1: was a radical psychoanalyst who trained with Alfred Weber. And the Frankfurt School was essentially a Marxist think tank funded by a German grain merchant who gave money to his son early inheritance. Uh And he founded a kind of a think tank to try and develop a revised Marxist theory. So they weren't in the Communist Party, they weren't in the Social Democratic Party, and they weren't aligned with formal disciplines. So it was an attempt to sort of have an interdisciplinary group of people who would try and figure out why Marxism didn't really work. Why in the 1930s did you get a Great Depression? And people were moving to the right, not to the left. And so the Frankfurt School were drawing on theory and culture and sociological analysis to try and figure out what was wrong and look at psychology and culture. And that's essentially what they were. And Fromm was brought in to the Institute to do a study on the social psychology of why people voted for the Nazis. That was his job.
0: And he did a study on that. You know, OK, first, I love that out of the bat, because what I'm understanding is that the Frankfurt School, it was kind of like driven by a like a Coke or Soros situation of its day. Is that it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Kind of a mini, mini Sorosh, mini. And I'm studying Sorosh now. So I've had this interest in kind of my sort of angles and, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, another version of angles. Yes, exactly. That That's kind of what it was, the money was allowing them to not be professional philosophers yeah. or party hacks. Yeah. <laughs> they were able to sort of develop a new theory. And this study called the Working Class in Weimar, Germany, that Fromm did under the supervision of Horkheimer, was essentially these long survey questions that were interpretive. They were qualitative, and he tried to interpret the sort of the psychology behind people's responses. And that laid the foundation for the Adorno Authoritarian Personality Study. So it was essentially the first draft of
0: Adorno's project. You know, it's also like when you learn about classical sociology, you almost imagine these guys as like once removed from people in togas, just describing pure philosophy in their pure intellectual world. And what I love about that story is it goes to show that the business back then is a lot like the business today. I guess they were running their Brookings Institution or their Pew Research Center. Absolutely. (laughs) That's great. Which is really important, too, because there is a definite public scholarship role in a lot of movements that we think of in retrospect as being highly intellectual or like the thought of pure disinterested theory. But you're saying no, the Frankfurt School, but, you know, the classical sociologists in their day, they were very much like the public sociologists of today, engaged in politics, running centers and all of that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And Fromm was a central figure in this early critical theory. The book is partly uh, rewriting that history, reminding us. So if you ask grad students, they'll say Horkheimer, Adorno, Marcuse, maybe later on Habermas. But Fromm was central to that group in the early years. Uh, And he basically got purged that nobody does purges like Marxists or... Yeah,
0: (laughs) Yeah. well, first, what did he say? What was was Fromm's deal? What was he talking about? And well, let's talk about what he said and then why did he get purged? Okay, so the study that he did, the working class in Weimar
1: uh, study, essentially he was asking questions that were uh, attempting to go beyond the explicit things that people said. So a lot of socialists at the time would say that they were for peace, but when he would ask them who were their heroes, they often gave examples of military leaders and kind of militaristic things. And a lot of the socialist leaders at the time or socialist activists, they would say that they believed in women's rights or they believed in children's rights, but they actually gave very authoritarian answers about the situation for women or children. So he attempted to show, he showed it to some extent, that there was a contradiction between the explicit thing that people were saying and some authoritarian attitudes that would lead them either to support Hitler or to not resist to kind of go along. So that was sort of the core of the study. The study was part of the prehistory of sociology. It was too long a survey. They lost half of the surveys when they had to flee the Nazis. You can yeah. see some of his political bias in his interpretations. This is not the kind of study that you want, we want our graduate students to do today. But it, historically, it was very important. And he fought with the Frankfurt School. He helped them get out of Germany. He understood What was happening with the Nazis earlier than many of the others in the Frankfurt School. He helped them get to Geneva because they had this money, the Nazis would just take the money. And the Frankfurt School ended up at Columbia University because Robert Lin wanted Eric Fromm as part of his empirical sociology because of this study on the working class in Weimar. So they went to Morningside Heights in Columbia. And what happened was Horkheimer didn't like the study there's a whole funny other story that Paul Lazarsfeld was Fromm's research assistant on this study. Oh, yeah. and Paul Lazarsfeld was kind of unknown and he was helping out Fromm, but Horkheimer didn't, they lost some of the surveys. Fromm was arguing that there was a left-wing authoritarianism, which they didn't want to say that, but there was also sort of a practical element to it. Fromm was tenured in this institute. Uh, Horkheimer had drifted away from Fromm, and he wanted to replace Fromm with Dorno. So he kicked them out of the Institute. They'd lost some money on a real estate deal. So the money was going <laughs> down. They were using, to be fair, they were using on some of the money to get people out of Nazi Germany. And, and they helped Fromm, oh, right. Fromm's relatives and other intellectuals who would be going to get murdered. And then there's a kind of a sectarian I mean, if if nobody does sectarianism like Marxists, the the, close second is Freudians. (laughs) So basically Horkheimer and Adorno believed that Frankfurt School critical theory should be built around orthodox Freudian theory. And Fromm was critical of libido theory. So Uh, he disagreed about that. So it was a kind of combination of personalities, politics, money, and some ideological issues. So he left the Institute and then published in 1939, Escape from Freedom in 1941. And that book made him famous. And from there, he never looked back with the Frankfurt School. They wrote him out of their history because that wasn't a convenient history. And they went their separate ways. And it was Escape from Freedom is this classic work of public sociology. It was a best-selling book that combined Marx, Freud, Nietzsche, And the training in Weberian sociology they got from Alfred Weber. And a, a very powerful analysis of the social psychology of Nazism. And he argued that the anxiety of the modern world and the freedom that the modern world gave us was also something that could lead to an escape from freedom which was various forms of authoritarianism. And Nazism was one version of it. And he made a warning that this could happen here in the United States as well. This was not a German phenomenon only. It was also a modern phenomenon. And that's one of the reasons why I think this Escape from Freedom book is having a bit of a mini revival. People are looking back to Fromm because there's some... Some, some, there's something uh, value in that, in that perspective. Uh,
0: no, so I want to get to current applications, but just to understand him in his context. So he sounds like he was an empiricist. We often think of these classical guys as highly theoretical, but was from a strong empiricist then? He was working in survey research and things like that? Or well, he believed in empirical research.
1: Absolutely. And part of the reason why he disagreed with Marcuse and Adorno is that he believed that psychoanalysis was an empirical enterprise. So his analysis of psychology was based on what he learned from his clients, and he didn't treat Freud as a philosopher. He believed that that you needed to uh, listen to the emotion and trace the life histories of people using some kind of theory, and that and so that was key. Uh, absolutely, he believed in empirical research. He followed up. Uh, Later on, he wrote a book called Social Character in a Mexican Village, which is an underrated community study of a Mexican village. He wrote in the 60s and published in 1970. So absolutely, he he defended, believed in, and supported empirical sociology and empirical research. He himself didn't want to be an academic, was not really involved enough in the profession as he should have been and sort of drifted away over years and the the fame that he got from these best selling books made that kind of unnecessary. He's by far the most empirical of the Frankfurt school scholars,
0: by far. Now you're there are a lot of treatments of Fromm out there and you engage specifically his work as a public sociologist, what he did back then and what we can learn from Frome's career in public sociology or his contributions. First, when you decided to take on the public sociology of Frome, what were you engaging? What was the impetus for this specific angle? Like, was it a concern that you saw out there or a formative experience? What got you started on Frome, the public scholar? Okay, so I grew up in, uh, in Montreal and I got a soccer
1: scholarship in the United States and I, I failed as a professional soccer player at Cleveland State University. I was only interested in soccer. And Eric Fromm made me an intellectual. So I was recruited into the world of ideas by Escape from Freedom. And then I became a socialist activist. So I spent a decade in the Democratic Socialists of America in the United States. And then I went to PhD at CUNY, the City University of New York. And so what I noticed is I knew hundreds of people who had been recruited into the socialist movement by Eric Fromm hundreds who had been recruited into sociology by Eric Fromm. And what I noticed is the closer you went to the center of the socialist movement, and the closer you went to the elite sociology networks, the less people liked Fromm. But the recruitment mechanism was he mobilized people into the movement and into the discipline. So I was sort of interested in that question. like How is it that someone was so famous in the 40s and 50s, and then he could become so forgotten. So I wrote some things about this early on, a bunch of articles to kind of explain that. But after I wrote my dissertation about how he became forgotten, you had the public sociology debate came up. And so we were in the discipline, we were dealing with the same issues that Russell Jacoby raised. Where have all the public intellectuals gone? And so where have all the public sociologists gone? And it was obvious to me that when you look at the the people that the Burway talks about as the great public sociologists, Du Bois, C. Wright Mills, David Riesman, a whole range of other people, Fromm was up there in terms of public influence. He sold massive amounts of books. He, he, He was the mentor to David Riesman, the kind of pivotal traditional public sociologist in the 1950s the first sociologist on the cover of Time magazine. And Fromm was his mentor. And the lonely crowd came directly out of Fromm's work. The early alienation research and even Arlie Hochschild's work uh, comes out of an engagement with the kinds of things that Fromm did in the 50s. And almost nobody knew about this. So I was sort of interested in kind of what is that forgetting about? Like, how did that happen? Why was this public sociologist? And he, all, he was also the most global of public sociologists. So he was known, he spent 15 years in Mexico, and he's very well known in all of the Latin America and in Brazil, in Eastern and Central Europe, he's massive. But in the United States, Britain and Canada, he went into this decline. So I wanted to try and explain that through the lens of the public sociology angle. He was many
0: things, but one thing he was, was a public sociologist. Now for you, when you're talking about public sociology, what's your view of what that evolves? Who are we speaking to when we talk about sociology or what facet of the job are we speaking about? Well, I mean, I think that the book is really about the public
1: sociologist after the invention, of the paperback and before the invention of the internet, right? So this book is really a snapshot of that public sociologist. And I'm also talking about famous public sociologists, right? I mean, so that's kind of what I'm talking about, celebrity public sociologists. The whole question about public sociology has to be much more diverse and you have to include local activists who are not famous and then the whole Twitter and social media so I don't offer a general theory of the public sociologist. So I do have some thoughts about that. And I've written a bunch of things on that. But so this is really kind of a snapshot of that period. The Daniel Bell, the David Riesman, the Cyril Mills, the Du Bois. It's sort of about that, that period.
0: You know, you talk about a canon of public sociology. And I thought, what an interesting concept, because, you know, Public sociology, I don't think of it as having a canon, or maybe I just, I'm not well enough read to know it. And even though I consider myself engaged in public sociology, I haven't really been reflexive about it on that level. And when you started talking about a canon of sociology, I thought that idea was intriguing. So what do you think we could glean from sort of going back to the canon, looking at these pre-internet era sociologists and how public sociology ran back in the day? What can we glean from that? Part of the book tries to just restore the, the history and tell get
1: the story right in terms of the canon. So there's a historical element to this but I just think we benefit from getting the story right. And secondly, I think that there's specific things in Fromm's work that are relevant today. But on the public sociology angle, what I would like to argue here is that we're going to benefit from looking at the positives and the negatives of being public sociology. I think we have to get beyond the debate pro of so- public sociology, or it's ruining the discipline. And I think you can see that there are positive things in terms of his scholarship and his sociology. He was doing a lot of other things. And the book has a chapter on his politics, but the book is trying to argue with this one case and hope people follow it up with other cases, of other examples is that there are clear advantages to being a public sociologist in the mode that Fromm did for his scholarship, but also disadvantages. It has this double-edged sword. And I'd like to sort of encourage us to think about it in that way, as opposed to a cultural war within the discipline for and against public sociology. And I try and develop specific arguments about Fromm.
0: That's cool. What are the pluses for an aspiring public sociology? What, what's to imitate about from and what's to avoid in your opinion?
1: I think that, now it's very different in his period of time, before the social media and Twitter. But in his case, I think that because he was dealing with big issues and I'm a big fan of Lou Kosher and there's a whole section of discussion from new Luke Kosher and there's a whole section in the book about Kozer's relationship to From. But I think that, Fromm's kind of public sociology kept things on substance. He never got dragged in to narrow theoretical debates for theory's sake or methodological debates for methods sake. And he never got distracted by sort of excessively internal sociology debates or or questions. It It was always on the big questions. And that's something I think we could really value. A second thing is that my dissertation on Fromm was called Escape from Orthodoxy. So Fromm was never an orthodox Marxist. He was never an orthodox Freudian. He was a sociologist, but he challenged some of sociology's core assumptions that you can explain the world without a psychological perspective and a depth psychological perspective. He drew from existentialism, but he never became Nietzsche or Heidegger or, or, or never became Sartre and never became a... An abstract philosopher. So he was able to draw from different traditions and pull them together in an original synthesis. And I think we do a lot more of that. Another issue I think that that I would say about the advantages of doing what he did is that he was involved in real politics. He, He spent a large amount of his money funding Amnesty International, partly because his cousin was a kind of an unorthodox Marxist, who was jailed in East Germany, and Fromm got him out of jail, help with the help of Bertrand Russell, uh, and, he, wow. and he gave wow. and he gave money to sort of you know prisoners of conscience, and he was very involved in helping dissident Marxists in Poland and Yugoslavia and the like. So he never believed, as some academic Marxists do that Marxism is a theoretical system only. (laughs) He understood the authoritarian elements within Soviet communism and Chinese communism. And he always connected to people on the ground who were both opposing capitalism and imperialism, but also Soviet and communist versions of authoritarianism. And I think that 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 came out of his activism, not out of his reading of Marx, now, the disadvantage is, I think he became increasingly divorced from scholarship. And so as he be- and especially as he became more famous, his work became increasingly self-referential and not checking it with the scholarship. So that's the other lesson. You know, as you become a public sociologist, keep your eye on the scholarship, Keep your eye on, on people who know something about these topics. Uh, it's a danger. And he fell into some of that.
0: But what I'm gathering is that all of the classic guys were not entirely divorced from like the politics of the day. We sometimes think of the image of a pure sociologist who just is indifferent to the current political issues that people are arguing over. But you're giving me a, a picture of somebody who is deeply engaged with pop arguments. Am I, am I wrong in this? Oh, absolutely. Chap- there's a
1: chapter in the book about From 1955 to around 1968, he threw himself intensely into political work. So Mm. he was an activist in the American Socialist Party. The organization SANE, which was an anti-nuclear weapons organization, was founded after the name of a book that Fromm wrote, The SANE Society. He gave money. He was active in it. He was involved in Democratic Party primaries for Eugene McCarthy. He was very involved in anti-Vietnam War protests. He was deeply engaged in the world and in, po- in the political world. Some of his activism though, is sort of another sub theme of the book. I, I respect and admire what he did, but some of it came through his celebrity status. And some of his activism was damaged, I think, by his distance from, uh, from activism on the ground. He was sort of a celebrity activist in a way. And there's a danger for, of that. You
0: know, I think. They sort of turned into like a Jordan Peterson or something like that. Or... Well, I
1: mean, I think that uh, it's a quite different. So there's a whole like, question of Jordan Peterson versus Eric Fromm. So I would put it yeah. the other way around. Jordan Peterson is another version of Eric Fromm, you know, <laughs> Right. And basically, and Noam Chomsky is another version of Eric Fromm. They were sort of, oh, yeah. they're very similar. All, both of those thinkers are very similar. If you think about it sociologically, so personally, Eric Fromm, I think, is a much greater thinker and a more original thinker. Mm-hmm. And I am far more sympathetic to the democratic socialist radical tradition and the, the new left tradition that Eric Fromm represented that I am to Peterson. But they're very similar in this sense, like sociologically, if you take out the content of their ideas and politics, because they both based their sociology or sociological thinking or psychology thinking on clinical evidence. They're both clinicians. They both were interested in authoritarianism and the social psychology of authoritarianism. They were both interested in religion and meaning. It was a key aspect from was anti-Jungian. So there has a difference, but they were similar in that. And they both wrote self-help books. So, the Art of Loving sold, <laughs> it sold 26 million copies. And it was essentially a critique of capitalism. It was it was mm. an argument for how capitalism makes love difficult. And if you look at the whole tradition, I mean, I would say that Fromm gave rise to the David Reisman type of traditional public sociologist. He was also the the original template for like C. Wright Mills and kind of new left public sociology. But he was also the template for Lillian Rubin and Pepper Schwartz and, and kind of even modern romance books that are self-help sociology. He kind of did that before anyone else with a radical edge. It's a radical book. It still works. It has its flaws, the serious flaws around gender and sexuality. Sure. It's, a, it's a book of its time, but it's an anti-capitalist book. It mobilizes mm-hmm. people. And it does what Peterson is doing for a whole generation of people now on the right, but Fromm was doing it on the left. And I think sociologists need to step up and respond and do better, engaging those audiences.
0: We often, Peterson, the take the that people have on Peterson is they're like, ah, he's just a pop guy, divorced from the Academy, it's not current, all of that stuff. And do I, do I recall correctly Like people were saying the same thing about absolutely, Fromm? And absolutely, absolutely. And you feel that's not an effective type of uh, argument either. Well,
1: right? I don't think it's effective. No, I mean, it, it is the same thing that happened to Peterson. It's happening now, happened to Fromm. The same kind of arguments. That's why I've been kind of following it for a while. Yeah. And I think we need a we need a sociological explanation of the Peterson phenomena. You can't yeah. just say, well, this is, you know, this is bad. I mean, we have to think about it. And, and it has something to do with Peterson's combining the role of the political, the father figure, the therapist, the media entrepreneur, the spiritual leader, uh, and, and he's sort of combining these things and, and the academic. And Fromm did sort of the same thing. So the fame comes out of these different roles. And I think we need to be more empirical about the Peterson phenomena. Who are his followers? What explains the phenomenon? I think we have to ask those questions and put aside our own personal reactions to Peterson. Try and ask some sociological and political questions that will allow us to respond in a better way.
0: It's very funny because, you know, Jordan Peterson is somebody who I have paid attention to. And he looks a lot like other digital content creators in a way I think one of his big innovations was he was watching what video game bloggers were doing and repackaged it for an intellectual product. You mentioned they're both kind of entrepreneurs. You can see them as entrepreneurs in a lot of ways. Well, I I would say that's probably
1: one of the differences with Fromm and Peterson. I mean... From had a business. He was a he was a clinician in some ways and he and he was uh he, he made a fortune selling books. Mm-hmm. So it would be, I think it's kind of a little bit unfair to trash people who make money because like we're all in that business to some extent, right? I mean right. we're not being quite honest, I don't think. Oh uh, no. <laughs> Uh, but Fromm was anti-entrepreneurial and anti-capitalist. So, okay. he, what, he, you know, he probably he would never be on Facebook. He would never do a blog or a Twitter. So he was a little old fashioned. Right. Mm. So, so it was quite different. Fromm was not an innovator in those things. He took the, the medians that existed and kind of played it out where Peterson is. And is clearly an innovator. That's part of the appeal. And what you're doing on this podcast, I think, is part of a whole generation of young sociologists they're doing, innovating with this. But I think we have to talk about the negatives of our involvement in social media and Twitter and all that stuff. I mean, and that's part of what the book is trying to encourage. There are negatives and positives to being a public sociologist. You can see it with Fromm, and you're going to see it in our generation now. And we have to have those conversations.
0: Well, let's move to that topic, because that's an interesting topic. And I I want you to enumerate them. But before that, there's one in particular in your writing on Peterson that stuck with me. You wrote, Peterson was like the sorcerer's apprentice, unable to use the new powers of his sudden fame without causing chaos. Uh, And you contrast this with Fromm's public scholarship. So I get the sense that You see Peterson and Fromm, there's a fundamental difference between the two of them. And Peterson's was something that you describe as generating chaos. What's the difference in your view? Like when does public scholarship go off the rails and when is it on track, so to speak? Well, I think in Fromm's case, the fame
1: came from the work Hmm. and it developed over decades. Right, So it was was not, Escape from Freedom was a bestseller and it kind of catapulted him to fame, but it was not so quickened and immediate as in the case of Peterson. And it was based on the content of his ideas that gave him the celebrity status. The Mm. Peterson case was not the content of Maps of Meaning or his work. It was a political controversy, a set of provocative action that put him in the center of a whole range of things Hmm. and almost ruined his life, almost, you know, it sort of tore his life apart in in many ways. It was really, the the rise was very different.
0: Am I picking up that the difference I'm gathering from you is you're saying From rose to public renown on an ideational project that he himself developed. Yes. Whereas you are, is it that you are, you see Jordan Peterson as sort of having ridden a wave to fame on a line of argumentation that was already out there that he sort of seized on and riffed on, but he didn't really inject a new discussion into the public sphere. Is that, is that what you're saying? or It's part of what I'm
1: saying. Uh, you know, the time frame for the fame is different, but mm-hmm. I guess I'm, for what I don't think it's useful for us to do is confuse the popularity of Peterson with the political consequences of what he's doing and our assessment of how great an intellectual he is. So I think a lot of people who disagree with Peterson's political views and my political differences with Peterson are deep, principled, and uncompromising. Okay, (laughs) But, But many people think that we can defeat his politics by convincing people that he's not a serious thinker or he's not a true public intellectual. This is our fantasies. You know, people people are not attracted to him because he's a top intellectual. I think Fromm is a much greater intellectual than Peterson. But but that's not the point when we want to think about what are the resonances of Peterson. There are the reasons why people are attracted to his ideas we are not totally sure of, of why that is. I think we project a lot of our own viewpoints on them. We haven't studied it empirically enough. Mm. And I think we have to listen and look a little more carefully. But the chaos was he got immediately famous. He was hanging around with a lot of very right-wing people in the early year or two of that frame. He's moderated to the center-right. I oppose the center-right, not just the far-right. But it's those distinctions are are important to recognize him mean, he's not, yeah he's not a fascist or a white nationalist i mean this is absurd and it, it destroys our credibility
0: when we try and uh, make those arguments i you know that i couldn't agree with you more on i think to myself i'm from, I'm from a small mining town uh, in northern ontario timmins And, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson does speak directly to people in a way that they understand and they hear an argument. And when scholars come around and they say, you don't have to listen to him, we haven't sanctioned him as one of us, it falls on deaf ears because people are like, well, who the hell are you college professors? I don't care. Give me a direct argument. And I think that's one thing that Jordan Peterson does well that we don't do well is speak directly to working class people and make direct appeals. 100%, 100%. I would
1: I would say, I would expand on that and say that the Peterson phenomena is exposing some of the contradictions in the modern research university. That a lot of students feel that professors are more interested in their research and their sabbatical and kind of the narrow issue as academics. And they're not really speaking to students directly Of in a way that Prom did, that's that was where Peterson and Prom are similar. He spoke about how to live a decent life, the art of loving is about how to live a life, and Mm. we that's kind of in contradiction between being an expert and doing the academic scholarship. I mean, these things are in contradiction. But we need need to do a better job of doing that and connecting that. The the teaching role in the university is not just the research role. And that's the source of the Peterson phenomena. One of them, he's speaking to people, to young students and to blue-collar communities, both of those things, in a much more direct way. And I would say it's even worse than just falling on deaf ears. If we marshal critiques of Peterson, and again, my political differences with him, (laughs) uncompromising <laughs> and, and sharp.
0: but unless there be any, there be <laughs> any <somebody. depth>. but,
1: <laughs> but but you can't if you if you marshal arguments that are clearly not true are clearly exaggerated and clearly distorted which is a lot of the attacks on Peterson there are valid important critiques but where people are throwing too much mud around and when you're throwing mud and people are listening to these and stopping him speak from campus, McMaster University, the students did that. I think it's totally ridiculous. I mean, half the, all the half the students are watching the videos anyway, so you don't let them speak on campus. I mean, what is this? Public universities should be at the center of intellectual debate and discussion. And we should be having these discussions on the campus. And we have a, an intellectual responsibility to be fair and accurate uh, how we represent people that we disagree with, even when we strongly disagree. And I think we're not doing a good job on that.
0: So that's the stakes for me. You know, it really resonates with me, this idea that we're not speaking enough to students. And I guess that means we might not be investing enough in public scholarship. And you know what really drove that point home for me was what happened during COVID. When all those enrollments dried up and everybody was worried that their department was going to go under and was I really secure? And I and that was when the rubber met the road. It's like the journal system wasn't responsible for your job, the NSF or, you know, the Canadian grants weren't going to save your job. You needed your department to stay alive and your department stayed alive by enrollments. And I think it really busted it down to brass tacks about who's actually sustaining us and how much we do have to appeal to people to stay relevant and stay alive. Yeah, Um,
1: absolutely. And we're talking about, we're attacking these grifters from Peterson and whatever, you know, and I mean, that's sort of the line, but Let's face it, you know, the university system has its contradictions that yeah. are being exposed. And everybody cared about enrollments, but people didn't used to talk about it in such cynical ways in meetings. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is a problem. So I think we need to recommit ourselves to and I'm from Canada. So I have a whole other conversation about taxing private universities. I think in the US it's your oh, I mean, the, the, the Yale, Harvard, Oberlin, they should be taxed. The endowments should be taxed. They should be paying. Uh, and then that money should go to colleges. And I don't want to get rid of these private colleges. They should just pay pay their fair share. And I'm very proud of the Canadian public system. But we need to recommit ourselves to public universities at the center of public debate, engaging in the bigger issues in, the, in some of the ways that Fromm did, maybe modified with some better scholarship and more attention to peer review.
0: So you talk about from a global public sociology. How does the global fit in here?
1: I mean, I think if you look at, I did my PhD in the US and I love uh, American ideas, American intellectuals, and I love the country, but there is a a kind of parochialism about America and culture. Oh, yeah. (laughs) and, And if you look at public sociologists, I mean... David Riesman was a very important public sociologist, but essentially unknown outside the U.S. He was an in, in American. C. Wright Mills has a bit of a more of a global reach for sure, but a, a large part of the public sociology is very American. And Fromm learned Spanish, and he was partly influenced Paulo Freire and his uh, critical pedagogy because he he knew Freire from uh, Mexico because. Fromm lived in Mexico, and so people who were fleeing dictatorships in Brazil and the like, the Mexican government would take them in. So he knew Frary, and the banking model in Frary came from an engagement with Fromm. So Fromm was massively influential on the left in Latin America. Mm. So he also comes from the German speaking world. So there is a kind of Frommian influence within German sociology, less so as the German university system becomes more Americanized and more professionalized, right? But, yeah. uh, but he was very influential in Poland and in Hungary. Uh, so former Yugoslavia, he was very involved with Marxist humanists in former Yugoslavia. He, he edited a book called Marxist Humanism, which was a global uh, book about socialism. So he was an internationalist and he believed in a global vision for both socialism or a democratic socialism, an anti-Stalinist, anti-Leninist, but radical vision. And his view of the world was far less parochial than a lot of American public sociology. And I think that's something that we should take on and, and think seriously about.
0: Well, in and of itself, getting rid of the parochialism is like an educational objective absolutely, here. Absolutely. Now, you're at McMaster's, and it's one of the discipline's excellent departments, in my opinion. How does classical theory and public social fit into your curricular? Like, what's your opinion on how it fits into the sociologist toolkit, the graduate student or the undergrad?
1: Well, as I said to you about, you know, I have this interest in kind of political economy of university funding. Mm -hmm. So traditionally Canadian sociology departments emphasize more classical theory. So, I mean, I got hired at McMaster because they were hiring a theorist it's like 25 years ago, which is increasingly less common in American sociology. They hire somebody who does cultural sociology and they teach theory, right? So we held on to that theory hirings and theory uh, perspective, I think a bit longer, but because our universities are public it's a much more of a flat system so the tuition is far less and the endowments are far less the universities are quite similar so you're much more dependent on tuition and government money than elite privates right that's sort of the i think that the endowments in the elite privates it has an anti-egalitarian consequence but it also allows the money allows you to space to do theory. So I think the theory teaching in our discipline is in a bit of a trouble because we're forced by enrollments to accommodate this. So we do a decent job. I mean, it is a good department. It's a terrific department. And I think there's a lot of exciting things happening in Canadian sociology more generally, but I am a little bit worried about the theory, the space for theory in, in in the discipline.
0: It's the... Uh, well, I will say that you guys got a lot of great classical sociologists up in Canada. And Absolutely. yeah, and it's a fine system. I would love for my daughters to go back to Ontario for their university studies. If, knock on love wood. To have, love to have them. Have them.
1: <laughs> to have
0: them. <laughs> no, they'll probably end up at some exorbitantly priced recreational type of university like they all go to here, but... We can hold up. <laughs> Anyhow, it was a real pleasure to meet you today. Neil McLaughlin from McMaster University, author of Eric Fromm and Global Public Sociology. Thank you very much for meeting with us today.
1: I'm a big fan of the podcast. So it was a pleasure to have these discussions of ideas. Oh,
0: that's all. well, hopefully, maybe that'll mean you'll come back for some more classical social content in the future that's awesome you've been listening to the annex a sociology podcast special thank you to neil mclaughlin from mcmaster university his book is eric from and global public sociology by bristol university press we're on the web the annex podcast.com on twitter at social and on facebook the annex sociology podcast our production team is led by anthony borelli and includes colby corley marissa gill medai mcfarlane Hanson Pena, and Oscar Rosario. Music is by Lena Orsa. The Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more information, visit queenspodcastlab.org. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.